0: Bibles go to First Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter three. In January, we started the series "Focus," which looked at. Uh, uh, the most important things That we as a church ought to be thinking about And focusing on And if you look back And think about what those particular sermons were Community, confrontation, confession, conversion Those were all inward looking practices They were focused on what the body is like That's the sort of interior work Now what we're going to be doing Is looking outside of the particular body And how we should focus as a church, who is practicing these these things, to the world. What God has called the church to be, both together and for the world. And we're going to start that this month by looking at church growth. Now, it's easy to assume that as a small church, we want to think and talk about church growth so that it can be a large church. But that's actually not the motivation here for us thinking about church growth. Actually, there's lots of ways churches should grow and lots of ways churches shouldn't grow. We want to see, of course, growth numerically. We look around, there's several empty chairs. We would love to see those chairs filled with people. But we also want to grow spiritually. We want to grow in maturity. We want to grow in wisdom and knowledge and understanding. We want to grow in patience. And we want to grow in wisdom and love. We want to grow in all of the gifts that God gives his people. And we want to be able to grow in effectiveness and sharing the gospel. With others, Regardless of whether or not those people come to our church and are part of our body or they go to another. It's the same reason that we go and send missionaries across the world to do work and to sow the seeds of the gospel there, although that may not impact our church back home. So growth is important. It's something we should think about. It's something the Bible actually talks about. In fact, Jesus tells us that the church should grow, that the church should advance. So we shouldn't shy away about talking about church growth, but we need to be careful about how we think about it, and it is a temptation in a small church like ours to want church growth for the wrong reasons. Particularly for, for me, my, my livelihood often depends on the number of people coming and giving, and our social kind of community is, is made better or worse by the people who are part of our churches. But we can pursue church growth for the wrong reasons. But the Bible wants us to pursue church growth for the right reasons. And Corinthians may seem like the odd place to start when we're thinking about church growth. We're going to spend uh, several months in looking at the, the the letters of 1 and 2 Corinthians later in the year. Uh, but for now, we're going to sort of pick up sort of in the beginning of the letter, which is really an odd place to start. The Corinthian church was, of course, plagued with with disunity and it was plagued with debauchery. There there are things going on in the church that were being accepted and looked over and and allowed that were really contrary to the gospel and to Christian behavior. There was divisions and factions and rivalries in the church. They were distracted by their own pride and their own conceit and their and their gifts and the use of their of their own gifts. They were devoid of course even for love. For one another, so much so that Paul would, would exhort them at the end of the, of the letter that if anyone lacks love, that Paul himself would come to rebuke them. But Paul here, rather than just beat the Corinthians up as he writes the letter, and for every bad practice they do, he, he actually graciously reroutes their minds and their hearts back to the gospel. As parents, we're sort of familiar often with this practice. We could berate our children for their misbehavior and and their disobedience. But what is often more effective is channeling or shepherding their heart back to the gospel. We may not be always successful in that, and sometimes we may forget that because we become blinded by our anger. But what's most effective in raising our children is shepherding their hearts toward the gospel. And the same goes for the church, and Paul knows this. And so instead of beating the church up, for their misbehavior and their bad practices and their stepping aside of gospel behavior. He reroutes their hearts and their minds back to the gospel by reminding them just what the gospel did for them in the first place. And the gospel does, in fact, have something to teach us about church growth, about growing as a church and as a body, a local, particular body. Now, let's just think about it for a moment. The gospel, by its very nature, when taught and believed... Leads to church growth We expect that to happen Where we find the gospel being received by others And believed by others We are seeing the church grow The book of Acts records this Every time someone's believed Luke then says And that day was added to their number So many So when the church is, is preaching the gospel And people are believing the gospel The church grows The physical, local manifestation of God's body here on earth is growing by virtue of the gospel itself. And when the church preaches the gospel and then delights in and meditates on the gospel, that growth is sustained by maturing Christians. So we should expect not only to see churches grow numerically, but also spiritually and maturity. Because Christians not only are sustained by the gospel, but they also grow in number because of the gospel. So it makes sense then that we should attach the gospel to this picture of church growth. So that should give us these boundaries when we think about how we would like this church to grow. As we pursue the work of, of, of converting others by God's spirit, as, as we want to see these, these chairs filled with other people from the community, we do so not detached from the gospel, but actually in light of the gospel. The gospel itself sets up the pattern of living for God's people in the world so that God may use his people in the redemption of the world. The gospel, this is what Paul's point to the Corinthians in the whole letter is. The gospel sets the pattern of living for God's people in the world. How do we live? How do we behave? How should we structure our church? How do we organize ourselves? What do we think about teaching? What do we think about the gifts? All of this sets forth the pattern of God's people in the world so that God uses then that people in the redemption of the world. Paul is concerned with the church's behavior, not for behavior itself, but because the church is a display of the gospel to the world. And so if the church behaves godly, the message of God and the gospel goes forth unhindered. Paul makes the same point to Timothy in his first letter there, that Timothy is to correct these issues in the Ephesian church because it is, it is sowing seeds of ill repute on the gospel. So the church needs to behave a particular way, live a particular way, pursue growth in a particular way, love one another in a particular way, so that God may use us in his particular way. So in other words, when the gospel becomes more than just a set of propositions to be believed, but a reality to be lived, growth will then follow. The gospel is not something we say, it's not a word we use, it's not something we throw on our church website or our signs, as something to simply assent to intellectually, but it's actually something to be lived out and in. And when that's the case, growth will then follow. So here's the main idea this morning, if you're writing notes, is that we can only grow when the glory of God and the grace of Christ has eclipsed our pride, has filled our heart, and fueled our mission. We can only grow when the glory of God and the grace of Christ has eclipsed our pride, filled our hearts, and fueled our mission. This is the, the issue at the heart of the Corinthian church. Pride has snuck in, and has allowed them to divide themselves on various uses of the gifts that the Spirit has given about whose theology they follow or who baptized them, about which sort of life or behavior or aesthetic is more worth following than another's. Their pride has been actually uh, 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 taken center stage rather than the gospel. Their hearts were filled with vanity and, and self-importance rather than the gospel. And therefore, their mission was falling flat because they were not concerned ultimately with the glory of God, but with the glory of the person they follow or with their church or their culture around them. So we can only grow in the glory of God and the grace of Christ, have eclipsed our pride, filled our hearts, and fueled our mission. So let's look more closely then at the nature of, of church growth as Paul addresses the issue of division here in chapter 3. I'm going to read the entire chapter so we get a good look at it and then we'll sort of work our way through. Chapter 3, verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready for you are still in the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being nearly human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believe as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. And he who plants And he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I lay it a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care then how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. temple and that God's spirit dwells in you if anyone destroys God's temple God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple let no one deceive himself if anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age let him become a fool that he may become wise for the wisdom of this world is folly with God for it is written he catches the wise in their craftiness and again the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile so let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God. It's the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, now we ask that you would guide our time this morning in your word, that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive your word in truth and in obedience, and we follow it diligently as you give grace. We pray and we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So apparently the Corinthians have aligned themselves behind certain key figures of their day, Paul or Apollos. And this aligning behind particular people has caused a bit of disunity in the church. These factions that have sprung up between one another we're not told the nature of the division itself whether it was theological or ecclesiastical or something else altogether but we can be sure that whatever the reason for these factions the root of such behavior was worldliness that is the flesh this is why he says in chapter three verse one we cannot regard you as spiritual people but a people of the flesh that is of the world So this division behind particular people is a worldly thing to do. It's it's a a thing people that do not have the spirit, but the flesh do. Disunity, factions, rivalries are the product and the fruit of the flesh, not of the spirit. This is ultimately because of pride. So in other words, pride of, of place, who they belong to or who they're attached to or who they follow or what they believe... Dominated the theological and the the doxological dimensions of the church's gathering. Anytime they they worshiped together, they were not actually worshiping God, but their own pride and whom they believed they should follow. And this sort of pride of place that dominated this discussion and this gathering actually tore the gospel apart. The gospel, which is meant to unify the church, is now being thrown aside and the church is being divided because of this dimension of disunity. But Paul here has a gentle rebuke, and his admonition is clear both to us and to the church, and we should heed his words as much as the Corinthians. He says that we should incarnate the wisdom of God, the wisdom of the cross, which he has been talking about for the first two chapters, by centering the church not on ourselves, which is worldliness, which is of the flesh, but on God and his mission. He cannot address them as spiritual people, but people of the flesh. He says infants in Christ. So he's not saying that they are devoid of the Spirit, but rather they are acting like those devoid of the Spirit. They have not matured beyond the the infancy of Christianity, of the faith. And although he gave them milk on which they should eat, feed, and be nourished, they have not matured enough to move on to greater and more solid food, into maturity, which they should have done by now. Verse 3 says you are still of the flesh. There's jealousy and strife. And when there is jealousy and strife, you are not of the spirit, but of the flesh. He says you're behaving only in a human way. Now this doesn't mean that we somehow become more than humans when we become a Christian, but rather we become something greater than we were before. Not ontologically, but we see that when the Spirit comes in us, we now have a part of the divine. Peter says that we are partaking in the divine nature. The Spirit of God himself resides in us. And where the Spirit of God resides, we should see godliness, not jealousy, not strife. And so if someone were to come into the Corinthian church or foundation church and see jealousy and strife and bitterness and quarrels and factions and and division they should and ought to and reasonably walk away assuming that there is no spirit of God here or that we have not matured beyond the point of infancy. This is what's going on in the church in Corinthians. And though our situation and culture may look very different from the Corinthians, our Western culture at large is not that much different. There's still pride which is sown into our hearts every day by the world. There's still divisions by who we follow, even within the church. Tim Keller, John Piper, Mark Dever, your favorite preacher, whomever. We still see that there are quarrels and strife and jealousy and divisions. But the Spirit of God should work to supplant those things. And when we mature we move on from milk to solid food, we see the growth happening in the church both spiritually in a maturity sense, but also numerically as others come and receive the gospel because we put the gospel on display through our unity. So we must incarnate the the, the wisdom of the cross by being centered not on ourselves. We center our work and our gathering together on God and his mission. Not on people, not on things, not even on ourselves, but on God alone. This is what Paul means by spiritual people. That we are not merely human But we act like those without the Spirit when our quarreling and our disunity leads us to a lack of growth and maturity. And let's just be honest with one another. I don't think foundation has been absence of spiritual immaturity, of quarreling, of division and disunity. Look around you. We've lost several people over the course of the year. That's not, in some small part, because of the quarreling and disunity we've had. So when we think about what our lives need to look like in pursuing church growth, we need to look at our own culture. We need to look like 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 the Corinthian church. And hear Paul's words. That where quarreling strife is, that's the work of the flesh. As I'll say later into the letter, we must sow not into the flesh, but into the spirit. So really, when we think about church growth, and we ought to desire that church to grow, we need to think about the work of the spirit driving out the work of the flesh and causing us to grow more faithfully in the gospel. So the gospel is part of our work. It's who we are. It replaces our pride of self and position and theology. And it puts the gospel and the mission of the gospel to the world front and center. That's why we gather the glory of God and the grace of Christ. Remember that it clips our pride. It fills our hearts and fuels our mission. So the question we should ask, and we'll explore through the rest of the sermon, is what does the wisdom of God, this wisdom to send Christ into the world, though it looked foolish to those who are perishing, though it seems unwise to send the Son of God to suffer and die, what does the wisdom of God and the cross ultimately teach us about the nature of church growth? I have three answers. First, it teaches us that we are not important. The wisdom of, of the cross... And Christ teaches us that we are not important. Look at verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Paul's point is really clear. We're we're not as important as you make us. Now, he'll start off every letter he writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints in Ephesus to those who are faithful in Christ Jesus, right? He'll he'll start by acknowledging who he is in God, the commission God has given him. He'll even remind the Galatians that he had no need to go to the other apostles to receive a validation from them, that he knew he was commissioned and that there ought to be some authority that comes with that. But still, in his humility, he recognizes that without God and before God, he is nothing. He literally calls himself nothing, Verse 7, neither he who plants nor he who waters, he's referring there specifically to himself and to Apollos, is nothing. He says neither of us are anything, but only God who gives the growth. So the first answer to the question of what does the wisdom of God teach us about church growth is that we are not important. We are not anything. There's a caveat, of course, to be made here. It's that our work is still not inconsequential. It doesn't mean that whatever you do, it doesn't really matter. In fact, what we do matters. That's the whole point of Paul writing this letter in the first place. But in reference to God and relationship to who he is, we are nothing. His work is greater than ours, and you will accomplish his work. Christ says to Peter, on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so we can be sure that God's word will be sure. Yet our work is not inconsequential. Though we are not important, and though we may, like Paul and Apollos, say we are nothing, we can still say our work has its consequences. As Paul says, some are planters and some are waterers in the field. The church itself is part of that field which has received the gospel, where the fruit of the gospel has taken root and has borne uh, and flourished and borne fruit. And those who are still yet to be sown into and and yield the fruit of the gospel and the faith are still sowing. And being watered. He'll switch the analogy here, he'll say some are builders, laying of the foundation, and some are building on the foundation. So that work is not inconsequential. The the sowers of the gospel, the waters of those who come after those who sow to, to continue to, to nourish and help those seeds germinate and give root and bear fruit. Those who are coming and even harvesting are important and not inconsequential workers. The layers of the foundation, the apostles, the prophets, and those who build upon the foundation are good and necessary workers. They are servants. But notice the importance and the role that's assigned to these servants. He says in verse 5, We are servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. So Paul, elsewhere in his theology, makes it very clear That it is God who saves, God who sovereignly brings and calls people to himself. As we read this morning, the effectual calling of God is his work in drawing a person to himself through the preaching of the gospel, through the words of scripture, through the leading of the Holy Spirit. And that he saves them when they receive that call effectually. It is not the ingenuity or the communication of a pastor or a preacher or a movie or a good conversation. Those are all secondary causes to the work that God uses to call people to himself. So he says, we were simply servants through whom you believed. The Lord assigned to us a particular role in this work of planting and watering and sowing and harvesting, of building and laying the foundation, but God assigned us to that role, and God gives the growth. So we are not important, but our work is not inconsequential. This is really the the whole motif of the letter of the Corinthians we'll see later this year. That there is a weakness motif that we are used, despite our weakness, to shame the strong. That those who are considered foolish are used to shame the wise. This is an important part of Paul's understanding of what the gospel actually does, is turn around The wisdom of the world puts it on its head and says actually Christ came as foolishness to those who are appearing. Those who, who assume that God would never come and die and suffer but rather would come and triumph and set up a kingdom. That seems like weakness and foolishness to the world. But he says that's exactly what God's wisdom decided to do. He says through whom us you came to believe. We are simply workers and instruments and servants. We are not wise. We are not great. We are humble, weak sinners. God gives this growth. That's why he says in verse 7, neither we who plant or he who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. Only God gives the growth. Jesus will say the same thing in a parable that no one really knows and can make the mustard seed grow. He simply plants and waters and he waits. And the next day he goes out and it's there and he had nothing to do with its growth, God gives the growth. Friends, have you ever overestimated yourself and gospel importance? Have you ever considered yourself a greater consequence to the role of the gospel than you really are? Maybe you assume that if you didn't say this thing now or correct that sin or preach that way, if you didn't interrupt that person, if you didn't make sure that you pressed the right buttons or said the right things, that this whole gospel endeavor that you are a part of will fall to pieces. Have you ever thought that if if you left or if you did this or you did something else, the whole church would fall apart? Do you think that without your influence, without your presence or without your gifts, God couldn't be glorified? That's an overestimation of yourself and gospel importance. But you might also have underestimated yourself and the role of your gospel work. You might assume that you're not necessary, that your work isn't important. And so you shied away from being a part of a particular church or gift, of saying something maybe where you should have, or leaning or encouraging or preaching where you might have otherwise done so. We tend to fall to one side or the other, assuming that we're more important than we are, or have a lower estimation of our importance altogether. I think this is easiest, easiest for us to see when we look backwards to the passing of time. It's been said that we often will overestimate what we can do in one year, but underestimate what we can do in ten years. We overestimate what we can do in one year, but underestimate what we can do in ten. Is Isn't that true? When I started this church, I thought we were going to take foundation in Fredericksburg by storm, and that first year kind of came and went, and while God did many great things, it wasn't at all what I expected, but over the course of the several years, we see a little bit of growth and a little bit of encouragement, in with a little bit of not growth and discouragement, and it's easy for me to assume that if I just measured the success between now and the first couple of years of the life of a ministry, that it would be a f- failure. But what if I looked, not in terms of days or years, but in terms of decades, what then could be the work that we sow into? We tend to overestimate what we can do in one year, but underestimate what can be done, for instance, in ten so what's going to temper our pride? What's going, to, what's going to be the thing that's going to properly order our work? What's going to be the thing that's going to give us to the, to the work in proper relation to gospel sowing and watering and harvesting? Well, it's going to be this knowledge that God's ultimate and primary work in the sovereign orchestration of our own humble efforts is the thing that makes the church grow. And if we're faithful, not just in a matter of days or weeks or months or years, but a matter of, of decades if needed— that God will grow His church wherever He places us. That if we view ourselves as instruments, servants, in God's hands, using our gifts, watering or sowing or whatever it may be, that faithfulness over time will work towards growth. So we are not important, friends. God is the one who brings growth. But we should nevertheless work in light of that knowledge that God may use us and his sovereign orchestration of our own humble efforts. So that's the first answer to the question, what does the wisdom of God teach us about church growth? That we are not important, but our work is not inconsequential. Secondly, we are taught to build wisely with faithful material. Look in verse 10. Build wisely with faithful material. He says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and then someone else is building upon it. So let each one take care how he builds upon it. For one can lay a foundation, and another that, no one can, excuse me, lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, word, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. It will be tested. It will be revealed by fire. And it will test what sort of work each one has done. It will either survive this test or it will not. We need to build wisely with faithful material. When Paul says, hey, you, builder, worker, sower, water, harvester, whatever your gift and role is that God has assigned to you, you need to do so faithfully with the sort of materials that will ultimately withstand the test of God on the day of judgment. So what are the sort of materials we ought to build with? It's this this practice of of wise and biblical doctrine. The practice of, of biblical worship. Paul explains that there is actually a way to build on the foundation of the gospel that yields a structure fit for growth. And there's another way to build on that foundation that does not yield lasting growth. There's a way to do it, and there's a way to do it badly. The difference between the two, he explains, is the materials that we will use. He calls gold or silver or precious stones, wood, hay, straw. He's not, of course, talking about an actual physical structure. He is talking about the church, but he's using these as analogies to show that there are better materials to use in the building up of a body for the growth and the mission of God than there are for other things. So what are the right materials to use in order to build the structure that God has called us to build. Only those materials that can stand the test of God's judgment, that is, only that work which is done with eternity in mind, will build the church and encourage its growth. That means we think about things, how they'll affect not just the church now, but how they'll affect foundation in Fredericksburg in eternity. We pursue growth. We pursue the work of the mission. We tend to the soil and sow the seeds and we harvest as God has given us the roles to do so with the future of God's return in mind, not with the now. And that's hard for us to do. It's hard for us to not look around, see the empty seats and just want people here. It's really easier for us to find ways to bring people in by one gimmick or another. And we can even justify those gimmicks in the name of saving people. Churches do this all over the place, that we will do whatever it is short of sin to save people. We'll have the best music, the best aesthetic. We'll have the greatest-looking preachers, and only the people who are good-looking are allowed to be up front, and that's mostly true already. But uh, you know, only those who are the best, the brightest, the perfect, uh, have the best Instagram feed will be those who uh, we put up front because we want to really give people a show. Well, certainly those churches who do that well are large. There are several of them in Fredericksburg now. But those are not things that are done with eternity in mind. Or most often they're not. Friends, we should actually pursue the kind of growth, both in maturity and numerically, that has people's souls residing in eternity with heaven in mind. Which means we will not manipulate. Which means we will not encourage people to do anything short of sin. To save others, but rather with faithful and measured using of the tools God has given us, we will build lasting growth. Remember there will be a day that God comes and He tests our church. He'll shake the foundations and He'll shake the walls and He'll set loose His judgment upon the church and the things that are built with precious stones. The things that are built with gold, the things that are built with solid stone, those things will stand. But that which is built with wood or hay or straw will be burned up and consumed. The question is, what are we building with? What sort of things are we sowing into our church as we seek to grow both inside and out that God will come and consume us on the day? Only that work, which is done with eternity in mind, will build the church and encourage its growth. Now, truthfully, friends, this means probably that our church will grow more slowly if we pursue it this way than others. That's not necessarily a bad thing. And we may be discouraged that it's a little more slowly than we'd like. But actually, we should be okay with slow, steady growth and expect that rather than what can we do to bring as much people in the doors or into faith as possible. The sentiment is good, but often the practice reveals the heart, pride, arrogance, and not eternity in mind. So doctrine and practices which clearly articulate and emphasize the gospel and are built upon the word of God will be effective in the church's witness of Christ to the world. So what are the tools we have? What do we know that God has given us? Well, we know that he's given us the preaching of the word. And that doesn't mean just my job. It means all of us who's called to preach the gospel. To know the gospel, to be able to articulate it to others, to share it, defend it, and give hope of that which is within us. We have the preaching of the gospel. In fact, this is the number one way God actually brings people to himself through the preaching of the gospel. What does Paul say? How are they to be saved unless they hear? And how are they to hear unless we send someone to preach? This is what Paul's meaning. No one comes to faith except by hearing the word of Christ. So... We have the preaching of the gospel. He's given us preachers, but he's also given us qualified leaders and encouraging saints to go and preach the gospel at work, at home, the family, at school, wherever it may be, preaching the gospel. That's the normative way that people come to be part of the church, the preaching of the gospel. But he's also given us gifts. Paul will talk about gifts later in 1 Corinthians about how God has given us, by the Spirit, these spiritual gifts. He's given the church here things like prophecy and tongues, the gift of healings, a lot of these miraculous gifts to use to validate the preaching of the gospel. So our gifting, whatever it may be today, actually goes and supports the preaching of the gospel, gives credibility to it, shows to others that we use ourselves not in service to each other only, but ultimately to the service of God for the growth of the church and the growth of his people. We have preaching. We are gifted by the Spirit. Of course, we have the saints themselves. We have, as Hebrews puts it in chapter 12, a great cloud of witnesses that is encouraging us to go on. In fact, Paul says that even he has been given to us to be used for the sake of the gospel. Look in verse 22. We'll start in verse 21. Let no one boast in men for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours. And you are in Christ's, and Christ is God. What does he mean by this? He simply means everything that I've done for you, church, is for you to use for the sake of others. Everything that I, I've done or Apollos has done or, or Peter has done or anybody else that God has given you is yours to build on to use for the sake of the mission. You have the saints. You have all of the great thinkers from the very beginning onward. You have not only Paul and Apollos and Paul and Peter. You have not only Jesus' own words, not only the apostles and the prophets now, but you have even the church fathers, men like Augustine and Justin Martyr and Tertullian. You have the patristics and you have those, even the medieval theology of St. Thomas Aquinas. You have the reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin. You have those even today who are faithful in preaching and teaching God's word to others. Both men and women, you have been given a great wealth of knowledge today, almost more than any other time in history. We have all the giftings of God's people made available to us to use for the sake of the mission. What this means then is Christians should be fairly well read, not only in scripture but in the things that have gone before us but gifted by the Spirit in support of the preaching of God's Word. Those are the tools we have, and when we utilize these things with eternity in mind, we see that the church grows faithfully and that growth lasts. So the second answer to the question, what does the wisdom of God teach us about church growth, is that we must then build wisely with faithful material. Lastly, we learn that identity is the key to growth. How actually do we grow? Paul says you have to remember your identity. Again, look in verse sixteen. It says, "Do you not know that you are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in you?" Okay, this isn't a verse to support your health habits and your bodybuilding. Okay, <laughs> I'm God's temple, so I got to lift. No, that's a job. That's right. It's not untrue. I mean, you know, good for him. But that's why I don't work out. It, it, it. Less to do with physical taking care of yourself, which by all means, take care of yourself. But Paul says you, you have an identity in Christ that actually enables you to grow and be the sort of church you're supposed to do. If you think you're one thing when you're something else, you'll never actually grow to the thing you really are. Because you're too busy thinking you're something else, you're too busy forming, informing your identity with the things of the world, the things of your own flesh, the things of your own desires, and you'll never grow to be the sort of person, the sort of church that God has created us to be. He says, "You are the temple, so act like it." You are the dwelling place of God. Therefore, there should be God-like things happening in your midst. There should be unity, just as God is three in one. There should be community, just as together they enjoy fellowship with one another. There should be peace and harmony, just as God is a God of peace. There should be love and service, just as God has loved and served us. All of these things should take place in the temple, the dwelling place of God, because that's who we are, the dwelling place of God. He says, you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you. And so if anyone destroys God's temple, even those from within are trying to work actively against God's temple, God will destroy them. Again, God will give the growth. God will destroy those who work against it. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So God is working in our midst through the gospel to make us into his temple, into a building. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, that we are being built into the dwelling place for God, a holy temple to the Lord. He calls us a house or a body or a temple or a structure. This is what Paul is getting at. You are the dwelling place of God, and so your identity must actually allow you to work faithfully for the gospel in the world if you are secure in your identity in Christ that is a sinner saved by grace by the work of Jesus Christ you are free then to actually live and love one another in ways that are helpful that bring clarity to the gospel you're able to teach and preach the word and live it in the reality of the culture instead of bending to the culture God will bring the sort of growth that we desire and that we see in the Bible when we recognize who we are in Christ And who are not because of him. Just think about it for a moment. Our identity in Christ will actually free us from the fear and the division and will fuel our mission. Paul says when you remember you're the temple of God, your need for these divisions and these separations, these factions disappear. Because if you're one in Christ, you don't have a need for factions. You can like certain people more than others, but you are unified together. Your identity frees you from fear. Go a little further into chapter 4. He so this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ. He's thinking, again, of himself, stewards of the mysteries of God. He's sort of saying the same thing again. I'm nothing, just a servant. And moreover, verse 2, it is required of stewards that they may be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. I'm not innocent. It is the Lord who judges me, and therefore do not pronounce judgment before time, before the Lord's come, who will bring the light to light, the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. And then each one will receive his commendation from God. You see, he's already sort of reiterating a little bit of what he's saying when God comes. He shakes the foundations of the world. He'll, He'll examine and test the church, and he'll find the things that are faithful in it. But he says God is the judge here. He says, God is, not, we are desired to be found faithful, but you are not the measure of my faithfulness. And even I am not the measure of my own faithfulness. God is the measure of my own faithfulness. And therefore, he's free from bowing to the, the unfair, unrealistic standards of other people, of the Corinthian church that they may have placed on him. He's free from the own burden of his, of his desires, of his standards. The only person he submits himself to is God. He says, I'm not aware of anything against myself. but it doesn't mean that I'm innocent, but rather God will judge me and only to him will I work to show myself faithful. That doesn't mean that he doesn't care about anybody or about what anybody thinks, but rather he means that the impulses and the desires and the opinions of others, though he may seek that genuinely, does not bind him to one way or another. He's freed. He's able to set aside the opinions and the fear of others he's able to set aside his own burden self-doubt and suspicion and lead a life fully in submission to God because God alone will be the judge that's the sort of freedom that comes with following Christ the identity of knowing that you are free in Christ allows you to stay clear of fear and division And it fuels you then in your mission as a church to build and grow and to seek to do the work that God has called us to do. Knowing who we are in Christ means we can do that faithfully without weariness, without exhaustion, but in perseverance. And only Jesus can free us from this. Only Jesus can do it. See, the unique thing about Christianity is that in every other world religion, the gospel is something that we have to earn. The good news of every other world religion is that if we perform ourselves well enough, God will give us the verdict of faithful. If we perform, if we work, if we do these things, obey these rules, live this sort of life, our performance will earn us the verdict of faithful. But here, Paul's actually telling the Corinthians that the gospel works the other way around. In Christianity, we receive the verdict of faithful and righteous in Christ and then are empowered. To perform, to obey, to live a particular life. the thing that the Corinthians need to understand and that we need to understand is that if we are Christians then we have been given the ability to walk faithfully to pursue these things, to ignore the opinions of men, to not cower to the fear of others, not to be divided but rather be fueled by the gospel because he has already given us in Christ the verdict of faithful and righteous and therefore we can walk in confidence of who we are. We don't have to we don't have to serve others at consequence and in neglect to ourselves, to our families, to the gospel. But we remain faithful on principle and in conviction for what God is doing because of who He has made us in Christ. See, our identity is key to our church growth. If we are gonna grow, we need to know that we are God's people, that we ourselves have been grafted into the promise and the covenants of God that we ourselves are partakers of the divine nature, that we are, uh, uh, we are one with Christ as his body. We are freed from our sin. And as sinners saved by grace, we are then free from fear. We're free from the division that plagued the Corinthian church and that may be plaguing us today. And we can fuel our mission by that freedom that only Jesus can bring. That's the truth of the gospel. That's the good news that Christ came, he suffered and died, and his life has given us life. And his death frees us from the sting of death. His resurrection ensures for us forever that we can walk in that same freedom, that newness of life. As we walk after our baptism, walking faithfully in obedience to Christ. Not because we have a verdict to earn, but because we have already earned our verdict in Christ, who has earned it for us. That means when we have this identity of who we are in Christ, we can walk faithfully and freely towards the work of church growth. Then we can become waterers and servants and we can become sowers and we can become bricklayers and foundation builders and whatever it may be. Knowing who we are in Christ and the work Christ has done to free us from these things allows us to be faithful in it. So church, we can grow and we should expect growth but only when we are growing by the Lord's standard. We should expect growth when we live for the gospel the glory of God and the grace of Christ eclipse our own pride when it fills up our hearts greater than the love we have for the world or ourselves when we have forgotten ourselves in service not simply to one another but to God and his mission that's fueled by this freedom we have in Christ that's when we can grow over the next couple weeks we'll look at some specific ways we can do that again things like uh, evangelism things like uh, how we could go and, and engage culture in the world But this is where this idea needs to start. Who we are in Christ fuels us. The gospel actually shapes our understanding of church growth. And then if God gives us the numbers, then we know we're growing in the right direction. But if we turn our orientation towards ourselves and God gives us the numbers anyway, then we'll be growing in the wrong direction. And I'd rather have a church of a few faithful men and women than a large church going nowhere. Would you pray with me? Father, that's true of, of many here. God, we are... Um, we're certainly guilty of the same sort of things that we, we read in Corinthians, uh, the letter of 1 Corinthians. We're prideful and sometimes worldly, but we desire, God, I pray what Paul says, that we should desire a heart for the gospel, a heart that is not given into the pride or the fear of sin, of the flesh, of the world, but one that is truly desiring to see the gospel made manifest through the church for the sake of others. We do want to see the church grow. We do want to have success on our our evangelism, on our mission, but we don't want to do so at the neglect of the gospel itself and the glory of God. For if we pursue growth by our own means, if we pursue growth because of fear, then we'll grow in the wrong direction. And God, ultimately, the judgment that comes will be one that shows that we have not been faithful. And so may we pursue faithfulness and growth in a way that honors you and that will stand the test of time with eternity in the forefront. We ask, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.